Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to uh, grow in knowledge of your word, to grow in skill in ministering it. God, I pray that you would equip the saints for the work of the ministry further because of this hour. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I want to pose a question to you here at the beginning, and I want you to think about how you would answer. Now, I, don't answer out loud. I also want to challenge you not to peek down at your notes, because then you'll kind of see where we're headed, okay? Um, okay, here's the question. What is the fundamental key to the process of biblical counseling? What is the fundamental key to the process of biblical counseling? Now, I want you to see how ACBC answers that question, and and I've put on your handout some sentences from, this comes from ACBC's Standards of Conduct, which is explained on their website as their Standards of Counseling Excellence. This is, they say, these are the terms by which we should order all of our counseling relationships. These are the standards we should use to evaluate the faithfulness of counselors who are certified with our organizations. And Certified biblical counselors are required to observe these standards of conduct in order to remain members in good standing. Okay, I'm trying to add gravity to the point I'm about to make. Is it working? Okay. Uh, Here's what they say. Biblical counselors must be committed to the truth that the fundamental key to the process of biblical counseling is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here's another way to say the same thing. The fundamental key to the the biblical change process, that's the process of biblical counseling, is the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's incarnate son, God's son became incarnate, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in our place, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, sat down at God's right hand and sent the spirit who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, if you agree with ACBC about this, and I hope you do, here's a follow-up question. Is this truth actually reflective of the way you counsel? Uh, Imagine if someone sat in on your counseling ministry, and if they were asked, what seems to be the fundamental key to the process of biblical counseling that you see them uh, carrying out how might how might that answer about you would they be able to say well based on what i've seen and heard it seems like the fundamental key to the process of his biblical counseling or her biblical counseling is the person and work of jesus christ we all need to be recentered from time to time and i hope i hope this is a, a recentering session for you the fundamental key to biblical counseling is not heart idolatry or the principles of put off put on or the four G's of peacemaking, or the four promises of forgiveness, or the four rules of communication, or the for anything else, or anything else other than the gospel. Although all of those other biblical truths are helpful and sometimes even necessary to the biblical process of change, but none are the fundamental key on their own. What is key is Jesus, his person and saving work. Again, Uh, The ACBC standards of conduct say in another place, and this is typed out in the next paragraph, Jesus Christ serves as the personal solution to all our counseling difficulties. Now, that's a massive claim. Again, and if that's true, that should massively shape our, our counseling. But how? All right, so first and foremost, this means that 
we need to share the gospel with our counselees and, and try to clarify their relationship to the gospel. Are they truly Christians? And so, again, quoting from the ACBC standards of conduct, and this is on your handout, is point two. Biblical counselors must point their counselees to the necessity of faith in Jesus Christ unto salvation. That's one of your blanks. Because Jesus Christ serves as a personal solution to all of our counseling difficulties. So the primary goal of every counselor should be to introduce counselees to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I think this primary goal is likely the main way that most biblical counselors relate the gospel to their counseling ministries. And that's a really good thing. But this can't be the only way that the gospel meaningfully relates to your counseling ministry if the gospel really is the fundamental key to the process of biblical counseling. I mean, surely that means more than just explaining the gospel in sessions one and two and, and trying to make sure that the counselees understand it and believe it before we then move on to other biblical truths that can help them grow and change. We can't leave the gospel behind in session two if it's key to the biblical change process. Now, next on your handout, here's how ACBC affirms this directly. Biblical counselors must also point their counselees to the necessity of faith in Jesus Christ unto sanctification. Faith in Jesus Christ is essential not only to enter the Christian life, but also to grow in holiness throughout life. Biblical counselors point their believing counselees to... Do you see that? Even You don't just point lost people to the person and work of Jesus. Believe, biblical counselors point their believing counselees to the person and work of Christ as that which makes it possible for them to live the life of faith. Now to restate that, the person and work of Christ, the gospel is essential not just to the beginning of the counseling process, but, but to the growth and change we hope to achieve throughout it. The person and work of Jesus need to relate to what we do in counseling sessions 3, 4, 5, and following. Now, I recently reviewed, here's another recentering thing. Um, there it is. I recently reviewed Keith Palmer's lecture on the gospel and biblical counseling that I heard several years ago in track one. Uh, he said then, all true change and growth is connected to and depends upon the gospel. And then he outlined these four points. I think one and two, we, we have a pretty good handle on how we relate the gospel to the practice of counseling. We assess where our counseling stands in relationship to the gospel. We present the gospel clearly to everyone. But, but then, what about these? Connect the gospel to the presentation problems? Uh, I wrote down that he said all skilled biblical counselors should be able to connect any presenting problem to the gospel. You feel like you can do that? Think about all the varied problems that people have in your counseling ministry. Can you connect those to the gospel? And then he said, continue to connect the gospel to the counseling process. How do we do that? Now, the, the last two are what I especially want to focus on today. How, how in an ongoing way we can think about connecting the gospel to specific problems of our counselees. Before we launch into that, warning. Uh, we don't want to overcorrect on this point. Um, to say the gospels are the fundamental key to biblical counseling does not mean we should make the gospel the only truth we use in counseling people. Uh, we still need to talk about put off, put on, 
um, peacemaking, heart idols, etc., etc., etc. But but we should try to keep those things grounded in the gospel or, or, or keep all of those located in the context of Christ's work. Teach people how the work of Christ connects to all of those principles of growing and changing and how they they do work only independence on Christ's work. So so here's the warning. While we affirm the gospels, the fundamental key to biblical counseling, we don't want to be reductionistic and just tell our counselees, just remember the gospel, just preach the gospel yourself all the time and everything will take care of itself from there. Well, well no, we need to say more than that, don't we? The Bible, the gospel is the main point of the Bible, but the Bible's a big book. And, and it says other things that are related to and dependent on the gospel, but are not in and of itself the gospel. So, so don't be reductionistic. That's my counterbalancing warning here. All right. With that warning in place, I want to share with you, uh, something that helps me think about connecting the gospel to growing. And it's this picture. I call it the gospel box. And, um, as we fill this in, this is on the last page of your notes. We'll fill it in as we go. And this is meant to just visually display some of the main ways the saving work of Christ connects to the ways that we need to grow as Christians. Um, do you see that? Is it, is it, can someone help us? What page is it on? Seven, seven. It's on page, sorry, it's on the back. Now, all right, this, this could be a chart that you share with counselees to help them see how Christ's work relates to their pursuit of obedience and change. Or this could just be a framework that you keep in your own mind to, to help you make some connections to Christ's work as you walk with your counselee through um, pursuing obedience with respect to some specific sin issue and change. All right, so to begin, you just pick a command of Scripture and write it in the box. And um, you could pick more than one in there, but whatever your counselee's issue is, one way they need to change with respect to God's word. Just for illustration purposes, I'm going to choose Colossians 3.19 because um, it's a softball, something we all understand. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Colossians 3. 19. All right, well, what does the gospel have anything to do with pursuing obedience to this command? What does the gospel, the work of Christ, have to do with someone practically uh, trying to make bring their life more into conformity with this? All right, six ways that the gospel relates. And you could add more, but these are just the six that I, that I use in this box. Connect the gospel to growing. First, look to the gospel for forgiveness. And I write that coming down from the top there. Look to the gospel for forgiveness. And then flip back to your notes and we'll do some fill in the blanks here. So the work of Christ provides pardon from God for disobedience. This is the first glorious way the gospel relates to our counselee. He can be forgiven by God for not loving his wife. He can be pardoned by God for treating his wife harshly. 2 Corinthians 5.19 God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. You need to share, share this with our counselee. Because of Christ, there, if you are trusting in him, God does not count your harshness towards your wife against you 
Of course, whenever we point someone to God's offer of forgiveness, we're also, by necessity, they're pointing out their need for forgiveness and therefore their guilt before God. That's the next point. The offer of forgiveness implies the need for forgiveness. And so it reminds people of their failure and their responsibility towards God. Forgiveness implies guilt. So encouraging people to continue in an ongoing way to trust Christ for forgiveness has this side benefit. It reminds them you are responsible for failing to do what God commands in this regard. And that's why you need to be forgiven. You're you're guilty in the way you've treated your wife. Your wife doesn't need to be forgiven for the way that you're treating her. You need to be forgiven for it. So so when you point people back to the pardon they have in Christ, you, you are at the same time refocusing them on the logs that are in their own eyes. But, but you're doing it in a way that, that um, if people aren't actively trusting in the pardon they have from God, what they're going to be tempted to do is not focus on those things. When, when you extend to someone the hope of full pardon, well, then we, can really, we really feel like we can take our sins seriously in hope. It also, talking about the pardon we have from God especially enforces our responsibility we have towards him for our sins. So the good news of forgiveness reorients our struggles and makes them God-centered. As I, as I go to God asking him for forgiveness for the ways I'm failing to love my wife, that makes me remember my main problem with how I'm treating my wife is, is not how it's making my life unpleasant, but it's between me and God. So in Psalm 51, do you remember this? When David seeks forgiveness from God... Uh, That naturally leads him to reflect upon the truth. He's responsible first and foremost to God for the ways he sins. Psalm 51, he starts out, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. He's seeking forgiveness. And then naturally in Psalm 51, 4, that leads him to consider against you. You only have I sinned. So the good news of God's forgiveness reorients our sin struggles and makes them God centered and you know this to be true if you've counseled for any length of time if you can get someone to be god-centered about their sin you are on the path towards real change the hope of forgiveness can do that for someone next pointing to forgiveness in christ reminds those we're counseling that their failure to keep this command is actually a really big deal the gospel this is the next point the gospel shows us how awful our sin really is and therefore how amazing god's Forgiveness really is. So the work of Christ reminds us God doesn't offer to forgive you for how you're, you're treating your wife because, because God's pretty nice and the way you're treating your wife really isn't that bad. No, it took the wrath-bearing, substitutionary death of God the Son incarnate for our counselee to be able to be forgiven for his lack of love for his wife and his harshness toward her. So the good news of the cross... If you're really, if, if, if you're pointing him to consider in an ongoing way, really what happened at the cross and the forgiveness that he has, that, that reminds him that actually he deserves God's eternal judgment for the way he's treating his wife. It's a big deal. It took the cross of Jesus for him to be forgiven for the way that he's treating his wife. This is good news. It's sobering good news, isn't it? It's that offensive to God. It's that evil. All sin is. 
But, but what amazing grace. He can be pardoned. He doesn't have to eternally suffer God's wrath for transgressing Colossians 3.19 because Christ died in his place. Christ took responsibility before God for the way that, that he lacks love for his wife and is harsh with her. And he suffered in his place. So, so we tell our counselees, good friends, you need to trust in Christ. That, that it, it, it took Christ for, for you to be forgiven for this. But the good news is you can be forgiven for this. If you're in Christ, God does not count your sinful mistreatment of your wife against you. He will not remember it against you unto all eternity. And you know, if you minister the hope of forgiveness to him in that way, what do you think that might do to her heart to hear you say that? You know, is, is she going to think, oh, don't tell him God forgives him for the way he treats me. Maybe. Maybe not. God can do a work of grace in her in that, in that way too. We should not be afraid to point counselees to the full forgiveness of sins they can have in Christ. We need to emphasize both your sins really, really bad and Christ's work is really, really great. Greater, in fact, than all of your sin. We need to exhort our counselees to lay hold of these promises of divine forgiveness by faith. And, and really, okay, so this is a very simple, very practical, very powerful way to connect your counselee, your counseling to the gospel uh, uh, throughout the counseling process. Just instruct your counselees, whatever issue you're working on, instruct them to regularly talk to God about the sin you're focusing on. Ask them to seek God's forgiveness on the basis of Christ's work as often as they realize they've fallen short of his law in this area. All Christians know they need to do that. How many, how many Christians are actually doing that? How many of your counselees are actually regularly going to God, asking for forgiveness, and trusting in the work of Christ for forgiveness, as often as they're, they're transgressing in whatever way um, the issue of your counseling pertains to? Now, okay, related to that is sometimes Christians wonder why should we seek forgiveness if we already have been forgiven? So just to quickly address that on the next point, Christians possess once for all judicial forgiveness from God already, but but still need to seek ongoing fatherly forgiveness from him. Sometimes, sometimes people distinguish this as the, the judicial or the legal forgiveness of salvation and the relational forgiveness of sanctification. So Jesus taught his disciples, his disciples, people who were already his disciples, to pray. Our Father, people who already were in a Father relationship with God, our Father, forgive us our trespasses. So we don't, Christians don't seek forgiveness from God as one seeking pardon from an angry judge in order to escape condemnation in hell, but we seek ongoing forgiveness from God as one who seeks forgiveness from a displeased father unto renewed fellowship with him. But this is related to the gospel because this ongoing fatherly forgiveness that we seek from God is, is ultimately granted to us based on that prior once for all judicial forgiveness that, that the believer has in Christ for all of his sins, past, present, and future. So instruct your counselees to ask for this regularly. 
um, and, and I explicitly in gospel-centered way. So I would I would tell a counselee, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick a scripture that's related to um, God's offer of forgiveness, like Second Corinthians five nineteen. God was in Christ, not uh, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And when I want you to ask, whenever you transgress Colossians three nineteen, I want you to pray to God seeking his forgiveness. And then I want, I want you to specifically express trust in prayer to God that you can have forgiveness because of what Jesus did. So pray eat like this. God, I confess that I have um, not loved my wife like I should. I uh, don't want to do that again. I acknowledge that was sin against you. I ask you would forgive me for that because you have said, you have said that in Christ you reconcile the world to yourself, not counting this trespass against me, against them. So I ask that you would not count what I have just said to my wife against me because of what Jesus did. Okay? Or, God, would you forgive me for this? And, God, I believe that, that you will forgive me for this because you said that in Christ... You, you were reconciling the world, not counting their trespasses. Okay, so, so that's a practical way I would tell them to do that. The, you help them to continue to look to the work of Christ, but it's specifically related to this issue that, that you're working through. Okay, next, very much related. We can our, encourage our counselee who's seeking to grow along these lines to look to the gospel for justification. I put this right beside forgiveness coming down from above. Now back to your handout, uh, the work of, or your fill in the blank notes, the work of Christ provides a status before God of perfect obedience. That's what justification is. In forgiveness, God takes away our guilty verdict and he takes away our, our status before him of being disobedient and deserving of judgment. But in justification, God gives us a verdict of complete righteousness. He, he gives us a status before him of having perfectly obeyed. And, and how can God do that? Because of what Jesus did, we are declared righteous by God. That is, Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to us. Jesus lived a perfect human life, and, and just like for the believer, the record of our sins is credited to Christ, and he took care of that on the cross. So too is the record of Jesus' perfect obedience credited to believers. And that wins for us peace with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, charged our sins against Christ, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God could count righteousness to us. This righteous status becomes ours through trusting in Christ. This is the, just, this is the doctrine of justification by faith. Alone. So, so it's not just that the record, the good news for our counselee, it's not just the record of his mistreating his wife was counted against Christ. But if he's trusting in Christ, then what God counts towards him is the record of perfectly loving others. Even, even applied to the context of, of his marriage. Uh, when we believe... God justifies us freely through faith in Christ, then, then that frees us 
from the need to try and justify ourselves either before God, but, but also similar to the point I made about forgiveness in our relation to each other. If we're with wholeheartedly depending on the obedience that Jesus offered to God to make us right with him and not depending on the obedience that we could offer to God to be right with him, then that frees our heart up in many ways to, to take our sin uh, fully seriously and not try and justify it by justifying ourselves. We receive justification from what Jesus did. So if our counselee says, um, wow, I realize I'm, I'm, just not, I'm just not a very good husband. The good news is not, you don't say, well, no, no, no. I mean, quit being so hard on yourself. None of us are perfect. Sure, you know, I've met a lot worse husbands. No, the, the good news is, Yes, that's true. But if you're repenting of sin and trusting in Christ, then God has credited to you a record of perfect righteousness, of perfect one another love. And that's how God views you and, and will treat you in Christ. This is justification. And, and I've, I've kind of talked about this point already, but the good news of forgiveness and justification in Christ keeps us from despair in the face of failure to live up to God's standards. I mean, how many of us have sometimes gotten so discouraged at how we keep failing that, that we just quit trying very hard? Sometimes trying not to fail makes you feel even worse about failing, doesn't it? I might as well stop trying to change if I'm going to keep sinning. It would just be easier on me mentally to just... Learn to, lit, to embrace the fact that I'm, I'm just not a very nice guy. I'm just not a very nice husband. Well, if you live trusting that God doesn't count your sin against you and counts Christ's righteousness to you instead, that helps you from giving up and from despairing. And Jerry Bridges is helpful in his book, Disciplines of Grace. He says, When you set yourself to seriously pursue holiness, you will begin to realize what an awful sinner you are. And if you're not firmly rooted in the gospel and have not learned to preach it to yourself every day, you will soon become discouraged and will slack off in your pursuit of holiness. And I've seen that a lot, including in my own life. The next way in which the gospel relates to growth and change is we look to the gospel for empowerment. I, I draw that as coming up from below. Empowerment. And... Uh, it comes up from below to show how our salvation in Christ enables us to walk in the ways of God's command. So on your fill-in-the-blank notes then, the first bullet point is the work of Christ makes us able to obey. The work of Christ not only provides pardon for disobedience and a status before God of perfect obedience, it also gives us power for actual obedience in our real lives. The, the promises of what Jesus did include our sanctification as well as our justification. And another way to say that is the work of Christ saves from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And, and if you want to you know, just stay in one text when you walk through this with your counselee, I've I've been in the same passage for all of these verses. Forgiveness, 2 Corinthians 5.19, God not counting our trespasses against us. Justification, 2 Corinthians 5.21, in him we're the righteousness of God. Empowerment, 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're new creations in Christ. 
All right, so, so if, our, if our friend claims to be a Christian and he says he can't change, then, then we can say, man, you are not believing the gospel that Christ died and rose for you. You're, you're talking as if you're enslaved to this sin, which means you're not trusting what God said that Christ accomplished on the cross. Romans 6 says, What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If we have been united to Jesus in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin, not a slave anymore. If we've died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Do you believe that? Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And here's the implication he draws. So you, believer, also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans, that last one was Romans 6, 11. Did you, did you hear the logic of the gospel? Christ died and was raised. That's the good news of his work. We who trust him are united to him in that death and resurrection for our sins. So that means we're not enslaved to any sin any longer. That's what God's word says the cross accomplished. This believing that you have power to obey Colossians 3.19 is a matter of trusting the promises of the gospel. Now, this is important, this next point. That means our confidence for growth and change does not rest on our track record, but on the work of Christ. The gospel gives us hope that we really can be different. If you trust in what Jesus did, you do not have to be harsh with your wife any longer. If our friend says, man, you don't understand, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. I've never been able to be a really nice guy in the past. I've never been a super loving husband. You say, that's, that's not very good. But um, as far as moving forward, your confidence in your ability to change should not be in how good you've been in the past anyway. Your confidence for the ability to grow should be in what Jesus' death accomplished for sinners. And the Bible says you must consider yourself dead to being harsh to your wife. And you must consider yourself alive to loving her. That's part of being alive to God in Christ. That's part of the newness of life that the resurrection of Jesus accomplished from you. For you, if you're trusting in him, you're not stuck in your harshness. It's not true so long as the gospel is true and true for you. Dare to believe the promises of the gospel for your forgiveness and for your empowerment to change. Romans 6, 12 through 14. It's, the logic is if you trust in Christ, you're under grace. 
And if you're under grace, then sin shall not have dominion over you. Therefore, let not sin reign in you. Romans 6, 12 through 14. All right. Empowerment for obedience, then, it's part of the grace we receive through faith in the gospel. That command, Romans six eleven, you must consider yourself dead to sin. You must count yourself dead to sin. That's a, that's a faith verb. You must have faith that Christ's death and resurrection set you free from sin. J- just like you must have faith that Christ's death and resurrection gives you forgiveness and justification. We receive grace through faith. And that includes forgiving grace and transforming grace. I really like the way Heath Lambert describes this in his book, Finally Free. He says, God's powerful transforming grace is available to you. But many people don't know how to make use of it. Having the power of Jesus to change without knowing how to use that power is almost like not having the power at all. It's like being stranded on an island with a fueled up airplane you don't know how to fly. It's a cru- it is crucial to discover how to grasp God's grace if you're going to benefit from it. If you want to use Jesus' transforming grace, you have to do something so easy that many people find it impossible. You have to believe it. Transforming grace works when you believe that Jesus gives it to you. The moment you believe in Jesus' grace to change, you are changing The more you continue to believe it, the more you will continue to change. Paul writes in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ when you count it to be true. That's when you believe it. If you want to change and be like Christ, you must believe that in Jesus you have the power to change. When you believe the power is yours, it is yours. Again, that's Heath Lambert, finally free. I didn't write down the page, I'm sorry. It's either in the introduction or or chapter one. Okay, now, sometimes when people hear, um, you know, talk like that, they think, well, is that, that just sounds kind of like the power of positive thinking to me, (laughs) you know? The power of positive thinking is, is a worldview that teaches that just thinking positive thoughts bring positive things into existence, whatever you're, whatever you're thinking about. Well, of course, that's baloney. Um, But this is not that. Trusting Christ's work for power to change is not fanciful positive thinking. It's just faith in the promises of the gospel. It's just believing, putting your hope in what God has said is true, that the death and resurrection of Jesus accomplished. So, So similarly to how you teach your Counselees, in, in, in this, this I'm, I'm very much modeling on what Heath Lambert, uh, how he instructs uh, people struggling with pornography in that book, Finally Free. When you teach counselees to, to pray in repentance to God, teach them also to, to ask God regularly for power to change with respect to how he treats his wife. Ask God for grace to grow in love for his wife. And in not being harsh with her. And whenever you ask God that, do it explicitly on the basis of what God's word says that that the cross accomplished. So take take Colossians 2, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Say, God, will you help me to grow in love for my wife? Help me to not be harsh with her today. And God, I believe that you will help me because you have said 
that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Or use Romans 6, 11 and say, God, I am, you, you see in my heart right now that I am full, I'm very irritated with my wife. Would you please help me not to be harsh with her? And I'm asking you to give me the power not to be harsh with her on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus. You have said, I must count myself dead to sin. You have said that because Jesus died and rose again, I'm not enslaved to this sin. So God help me. I believe your word is true. Here I go. I'm going to go speak kindly to her. Okay. Again, you, this, this is an ongoing way. That, that they can trust in what God's word says about the cross. Closely related, the idea of looking to the gospel for empowerment is next on your handout, looking to the gospel for motivation. Now, I draw this one coming from behind the man, for obvious reasons, to show how the gospel spurs us on to motivate us to walk in obedience to the commands of scripture. And then back on... You're filling the blank notes. The work of Christ motivating us makes us want to obey. This is important. Being able to grow, being empowered to grow, isn't that helpful if we don't want to grow? Right? I could go outside and, and eat a bowl of dirt. I have the power to do that, but I will never do that because I don't want to. Faith in Christ's work gives us the power and the desire to change. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that's the gospel, isn't it? He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The more I live gripped by the reality that Christ died for me, the more I will want to live for him and not for myself. The death of Christ for our sins purchased for us new godly desires. New motivations are part of the gift of God's grace to us in Christ. God's love, here's one way to think about it. God's love displayed in the gospel motivates ours. 1 John 4, that, that's where it says we love because he first loved us. And then also in that passage, it says exactly what it means. How did he love us? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the gospel. Luke 7 is the story where, where the woman was, was uh, anointing the feet of Jesus and the tax collectors had problems with this. And Jesus in the end says, uh, the one who is forgiven much loves much. If you're trusting in what Christ did to forgive you, that will motivate you to love. To love him. And, and love fulfills the whole law. So his love motivates our obedience to the whole law. Because, because all of it is an expression of love to God or, or neighbor somehow. Likewise, along these lines, the work of Christ gives us the right motivations for obedience. The right motivations for obedience. Motives matter. God tests the heart. God does not just call us to grow in external conformity to his law. So, so you could tell your counselee, listen, I will give you a thousand dollars that you can use on a private vacation to get away from your wife for a few days. If you will just stop being harsh with her for a couple of weeks, you know, I think that, I think that would sufficiently motivate uh, a lot of husbands to stop being harsh 
with, with his wife for a couple of weeks. But would God be pleased by their uh, external conformity to God's law there? Obviously not, right? That, that heart's motivated by greed and self-love. So, so there's a kind of um, external conformity to the law of God, which is actually unrighteousness in God's sight because of the heart behind those actions. I mean, unbelievers can do things that conform externally to the law of God. What are the right motivations for obedience to God's commands? Faith in God, whatever does not come from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Hebrews eleven six. the glory of God, whether you eat and drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. First Corinthians 10, love for God. Those are the greatest commandments. Love for God, love for neighbor. So, so faith in God's gospel promises is, is, is firewood that, that causes these holy motivations to flame up in our hearts. We trust him. We love him. We want to live for our glory now i mean we know as biblical counselors that that what's going on in the heart is really what matters we we need this guy to turn from wanting to please himself to wanting to please the lord how does he actually get those desires to want to please the lord instead of please himself what and and what should he do when he finds that he's living to please himself when he finds his heart is full of sinful motives wanting to please himself instead of Please the Lord. Well, the work of Christ is the answer to both of those questions. Here's another way to look at the the same idea. The expulsive power of a... And I I got the title wrong. It's of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. It's one of the most famous historic sermons ever preached in the English language. Uh, And and Thomas Chalmers takes as his text 1 John 2.15 which says, don't love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So he says, okay, love of the world and love of the Father can't live in the same heart. So he says, the love of the world then is not going to leave someone's heart unless a greater love comes in and pushes it out. He argues from scripture and experience that it's actually very, very hard to just focus on stop wanting to do something it's hard to 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 decrease your desire to do something it's hard to get rid of an affection what you should focus more on is gaining a new affection that's even greater and a new affection has power to expel or or uh, new affections have expulsive power if i go into an ice cream shop and i see mint chocolate chip cookie mint I, i combine Two ice creams. If I see mint chocolate chip ice cream, that's what I want. Show me Rocky Road. No. You say, well, we're pretty low on this ice cream. I need you to want that less. I need you to decide you don't want mint chocolate chip ice cream. Like, okay, well, I can fake it, but that's what I want. All right. Well, if you if you bring out an ice cream, I want more. But, oh, actually, here's some chocolate chip cookie dough from the back. I said, like, Okay. Now my, my desire for mint chocolate chip has decreased. Why? Because something I want more has come in. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. How do we grow in love for the Father? Christ, 1 John 4. We love 
because he first loved us. How did he love us in sending his son to be our savior? There's the gospel motivating our obedience. It's a great sermon. It's free online because it's old. Now, while on this topic of motivation, I want to reiterate the warning about reductionism I gave earlier. That in saying the gospel provides motivation, even in, in the, the gospel gives us the right motivations for obedience, that does not mean that the Bible does not provide other motivations to pursue obedience as well. Like the motivation to avoid God's discipline because it's painful. That's legitimate. That's biblical. Um, we could list many others. So in showing how, how the work of Christ for us gives us motivation for growth, I'm not intending to say that's the only biblical source of motivation that, that God in his word gives us for pursuing holiness. And, and the little book by Kevin DeYoung, The Hole in Our Holiness, I think he has a chapter that addresses that specifically, that there are, there are many um, motivations that the Bible gives us for pursuing holiness, and the work of Christ is one of those. But it is one of those. And it is a way that you can connect the work of Christ to the process of biblical counseling. It's, it's an important way. Now, another way that we can clearly connect the gospel to growth and obedience is the example we have in Christ in what he did for us. And that's out in front of the man, again, for obvious reasons. The Bible says we are to love not only because he loved us, motivation, we are to love just as he loved us in the same manner, following his pattern, his example. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, John 13, 34. There are other more specific ways that scriptures exhort us to obey, explicitly saying that following the example of Christ is the reason why we should obey this command. We are to, here's a lot of blanks for you. We are to forgive, serve, endure suffering righteously, humbly obey God and consider others, please others for their good. All of those commands are, are specifically, we're told to do that after the pattern of Christ's work in saving us. So, Christians follow Christ. That's definitional of a Christian. So our, our obedience is, is gospel-shaped. Jesus took up a, gospel, a cross for us. That's the gospel. And he calls us to follow him by denying ourselves and taking up a cross daily. So I have one more that, that I put on this chart. Lastly, when we think about striving after obedience to God's commands... Does anyone still need this, this one up here? All right. Look to the gospel for acceptance and reward. Acceptance and reward. And because of the work of Christ, God graciously accepts and even rewards the good works of believers. That's what's next on our handout. <clears throat> now, rewards are 
promise for believers good works. There's a lot of scriptures that say that. And I've listed a lot of them. Rewards, though, we understand, they're not, they are further gifts of God's grace. They're not our due. Luke 17.10 tells about a servant who serves his master. And then does the master thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? Luke 17.10, so you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we're unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Job 35.7, these are all in your handout. Job 35.7 says, if you are righteous, what do you give to God? What does he receive from your hand? Romans 11.35, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? God does not reward believers for good works because our good works make God indebted to us somehow, like we've benefited him somehow. God rewards believers for their good works. That's more grace. (laughs) More grace, not our due. And these rewards for good works are, are gifts of grace that we receive in Christ. That's the next point on your handout. Our imperfect good works are accepted and rewarded only as they're offered to God in Christ. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves are like living stones built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We live our life. Everything we do is, a, is, is, is worship. And we offer these spiritual sacrifices of worship, of obedience to God, and they are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, part of why that's true is because even our most righteous works in this life are still stained by sin. In part because motivations matter, right? There's there's not a single person in here who... I think for a single second in your life has ever perfectly loved the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, all your strength. And that's the greatest commandment. We, we in a sense, we're incessantly falling short of the most important commandment that there is, even in our most righteous moments. But because of Christ... God accepts the imperfect spiritual sacrifices we give to him. Now, I I printed some um, sections from, because this concept is not understood as much and kind of hard to understand, perhaps. So I printed um, explanations from, this one's the Westminster Confession of Faith on good works. We cannot, by our best works, I'm reading from your handout, merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by them, We can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, we have only done our duty and our unprofitable servants. And because these works are good, they proceed from his spirit. But as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection, they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. Now look at six. Notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ... Their good works are also accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight. 
but that God looking upon these good works in his son is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. This, this is true. Next, uh, here's a John Owen quote. Believers obey Christ as the one by whom our obedience is accepted by God. But believers know all their duties are weak, imperfect, and unable to abide in God's presence. Therefore, they look to Christ as the one who bears the iniquity of their holy things, who adds incense to their prayers, who gathers out all the weeds from their duties and makes them acceptable to God. When Christ died on the cross for our sin, that includes all of the, all of the stains of sin on our good works. Richard, Richard Sibbs uh, wrote in his Puritan work, The Bruised, the Bruised Reed, says the purest actions of the purest men need Christ to perfume them. And this is his office. And so he does. So, so this is wonderful in Christ. Not only are, is our, can our counselee be forgiven for not loving his wife, can be counted by God as if he has always loved his wife perfectly, can be empowered to actually start loving his wife more and more, can be motivated to do that. It has an example in Christ saving him to do that. And his imperfect, though sincere, attempts to do that can be accepted and rewarded by God. All because of Jesus. So, you could add more lines that describe other aspects of the work of Christ. M- many times, I'm not... You don't have to dump the truck on your counselees and give them, you know, all six, every way that you can possibly think of that the work of Christ pertains to their efforts to love their wives. Just pick one of these, one of these, and and share it one session. Pick another one of these. Have this framework in your mind. Um, Now, as you think about your counseling ministry, don't think about your counseling ministry like this, right? Right? You're just just trying to get some guy to love his wife more because God's word says that he should. Minister the good news of the person and work of Jesus about how that actually applies to him growing in this very specific way. Okay? Don't be this kind of counselor. Be this kind of counselor. The fun... Because... It's true, the fundamental key of the process of biblical counseling is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I knew that uh, we would be about out of time now, so I didn't actually plan to go through these other ideas for connecting the gospel to the counseling process, um, but I guess we do have a few minutes, don't we? Real quickly, um, when you, other ideas of how you can do this, when you give a scripture passage of homework, It's a good idea to give as your homework. Here's a scripture passage. Here's some questions you need to answer about it. But you can always ask, how does this passage reveal or point to the gospel? Or how does what Jesus has done for us relate to the truths of the passage? And when I ask someone a question like that, um, I, I do keep this framework in my mind. And I'm just looking for them to give me one of those answers. I don't, I don't care what it is. But as long as they're thinking somehow, about how what Jesus did is, is their hope in light of how they need to change. 
Also, minister scriptures in their wider biblical context. And, and there may be an explicit connection to God's saving work in Christ, to, to the scripture ministering, and especially in the New Testament epistles. This is often the case. And I give, I give some examples. Um, the put, off, put on commands of Colossians 5, for example, are grounded upon verses 1 through 4. That, that, that you've died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ. When, when Christ appears in glory, you'll appear in glory with Christ. Therefore, put to death what is earthly on, in you. So, so just widen your horizon and often uh, an, an explicit connection to God's saving work is, is right there. I gave some other examples of, of how to do that. Also, here's another good idea for connecting the gospel to the counseling process. The three trees chart, if you need a refresher on that, Google that. Uh, and that's, all, that's another framework you can keep in mind of how to connect the gospel to the process. Heath Lambert's book, Finally Free, is, is excellent. And I would encourage you to, to get it, even if you're not ministering to someone who's struggling with pornography. That, that's what it's all oriented towards. But just see how he counsels with respect to that issue. Read the introduction, read chapter one to see how he talks about how all of the different strategies for growth and change he's going to present are based on the work of Christ. And then just look at how he ends each chapter, including the application points at the end, and see how he connects all of these biblical principles for change back to the work of Christ. I think, I think that would be instructive for you. Assign gospel scriptures for memorization, meditation, and prayer. Um, like I said, you can assign prayer that explicitly connects faith in Christ's work to the ways they need to grow. Um, I, I illustrated that earlier. Okay, I think that's the last one I put. There are others. There's my email address if you have any questions. I should have asked for questions along the way, and I was about to now, but it's 2.30, so if you have questions, you can ask me uh, after. I dismiss everyone to the break, which will be after we close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the work of Christ. Thank you that uh, Christ is all we need. Christ is all in all. The forgiveness we need, the power to change we need, uh, the motivation to walk in greater obedience we need, it's all in Christ. God, we, we love the way that this brings glory to your Son. God, I pray that you would help all of us to become more skilled at being able to apply the cross to the specific ways that our counselees need to grow and change. God, I pray you would protect us from overcorrecting or being reductionistic about this. But, but at the same time, God, I pray you would help us to minister the full hope of the gospel regularly, powerfully. Help us not to be afraid to be as, as bold about the promises of the gospel as you offer them in the scriptures even to great sinners, even to great sinners who stumble repeatedly. God, I pray you would help us to believe these things for ourselves as well and, and to walk in greater, uh, more, as you say, more in step with the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.